reading for the sermon is Matthew 22, verses 15 and following. Turn with me there in your Bibles. This is the word of God Almighty, the only God, the true God, the living God. Listen reverently as I read it to you, starting in verse 15 of Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me? You hypocrites. Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they marveled. And leaving him, they went away. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of having your word uh, that comes from your mind, heart, if you will, mouth, metaphorically speaking. We thank you that uh, this is a sure word that we can know Uh, that it is true, that uh, it has everything that we need uh, for life and godliness. We pray that you would minister to us through your word preached, but also we pray that you would honor um, yourself by causing your glory to be reflected in our response to this word of yours. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, when you uh, tell your uh, when your parents tell you to do something, they give you, uh, they say, you know, uh, Tegan, I want you to go and pick up your toys. Or, uh, uh, Joel, I want you to uh, go out, take this garbage bag and put it in the garbage can for me. Whatever your parents tell you to do. When your parents tell you to do something, did you know that God expects you to do it? Did you know that? I hope I, is everybody nodding, I hope, at least you younger kids? Uh, You're supposed to obey, and God expects you to obey, and why is that? Why does he expect you to obey your mom and your dad? Well, because when you're obeying your mom and your dad, you're obeying God, so long as mom and dad are not telling you to do something sinful. You're obeying God because God has delegated his authority over you to your parents to exercise uh, on his behalf for you. So the, the, the right to rule over you that God has is he gives that to you, he delegates it. That means it's a fancy way of saying he uh, lets that God's rule over you come through your mom and your dad. And that's why you're supposed to cheerfully um, obey your parents even when they tell you to do your chores, if you've got chores. But what if, so that's your mom and your dad, okay? But what if, let's just say uh, a policeman, let's say you were in the park or something and you're playing ball with friends somehow and a policeman comes over and says to you uh, and names your name and then says, you know, you're not, you're not supposed to be in this area playing. This area is reserved for somebody, let's say. Uh, you need to be over there uh, on that side of the park if you're going to play ball. Are you required to obey the policeman? The answer is yes. Now, he too, or she, sometimes it's she, has authority that that God has given to him or her, the police person, uh, and that's God's authority. So ultimately, it's God 
that you're responding to when you respond uh, positively to the policeman. Or negatively, if you say no, you've said no to God when you said no to the policeman as long as he hasn't, if he hasn't said something, told you to do something that was sinful. This is an important concept, kids, that is part of this message and Jesus' teaching in this passage of Scripture that we're looking at. Because we're talking about um, different spheres of authority, that is, different places in which God's authority manifests itself in the lives of people. Uh, God, uh, one of the, for you, the principal sphere of authority you're in is the family and God's authority over, the, uh, over you through your parents. But we also live in a world that has other places where there's authority, including the church, the elders, and including the police and others above the policemen who uh, enforce our laws, for example. And this passage speaks to that effect, uh, to that point. So listen as I uh, go through this here, and uh, as we go through this, I should say, uh, and unpack this uh, this passage that we're looking at. It is the last week of Jesus' life. Um, and just remind you what's briefly what's happened uh, so far this week on Sunday, which is the first day of the week. Uh, uh, we often think of Monday as the first day, but it is Sunday. Um, and uh, on Sunday, of course, that's when Jesus marched into Jerusalem on the uh, uh, the uh, a donkey's foal. And it was on that day, as he was marching, as he was coming into Jerusalem on the back of that foal, that he that the crowds. Um, cheered him on, and indeed uh, proclaimed him to be the Messiah through the, the chants that they were repeating over and over again. And Jesus allowed this. He didn't tell them to, don't say that, you know, or shush. He let the crowds openly proclaim him to be God's messianic king. And this was a first, actually, that he allowed people to do that and didn't try to suppress what they were saying. That was Sunday. Then on Monday of this week, Jesus uh, asserts his authority, his messianic authority, by cleansing the temple of the buyers, sellers, and money changers who were doing business in the temple and thereby profaning it. And he was asserting his authority over the temple by that uh, casting out of them and by demanding that it only be used for those purposes that God intended it to be used for, which was his worship by his people. Then on Tuesday of Passion Week, we it's often referred to as the last week of Jesus' life, Jesus engages in uh, a series of confrontations, verbal confrontations with the, with the religious leaders, actually representatives of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish council. Uh, at their initiation, they confronted him with a series of uh, challenges and questions, uh, and um, Jesus engages through parables, through the teaching of several parables that we've already looked at uh, earlier in this chapter and in the preceding chapter uh, in his discussion with them. And what they are trying to do, and we all know what's uh, what's going on, uh, if you're familiar at all with the, the Gospels, is these men who are Jesus' adversaries, they are his uh, arch enemies, they hate him because he is God uh, and he is... Uh, has made claims on their lives, and they 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 have want nothing to do with his claim over them uh, as their covenant lord, and they are trying to trip Jesus up. Um, they have to discredit him. They know this. Uh, it's important for for getting what they want accomplished. It's important to discredit him in the eyes of the people, uh, the common man. Um, if they are going to get rid of him, they have to do this. They have to get the people turned against Jesus. And mass, and they also needed to find a pretext that they could use to have Jesus arrested and turned over to the Roman authorities for uh, prosecution and punishment. So that's what's happened uh, up to this point uh, that we're reading about here in 2015. Well, that leads me to the two things we're going to uh, look at in depth today from this passage. The first is the question designed to discredit Jesus and entrap Jesus. And then we're going to look at the answer designed to expose uh, 
the religious leaders' hypocrisy. So they are the ones who ask the question. We're going to look at their question, which is designed to entrap or discredit Jesus, and then Jesus' answer designed to expose their evil hypocrisy. So the question designed to entrap and discredit our Lord. The Pharisees and the Herodians are the ones who pose this question jointly to Jesus. These two groups, there were a number of uh, different uh, parties, if you will, in ancient Israel in Jesus' day. Uh, there were other parties as well. There were the Sadducees, there were the Essenes, uh, there were the Zealots, uh, and we'll see more about some of them in here in a minute. But uh, there was also the Pharisees and the Herodians, and these were all different factions of uh, Jewish society. And the Pharisees and the Herodians were normally arch enemies. They hated each other, despised each other. And the reason was because the Pharisees um, uh, deeply rep- re- excuse me, deeply represented Roman uh, uh, dominion over them. But the Herodians, you can hear it in the name, their title, Herodians, they were loyal supporters of Herod Antipas and the uh, Herodian dynasty, which were puppets of the Roman government. And so the Herodians were in favor of the Roman uh, government and uh, Rome's control over Palestine, and the Jews detested that uh, that domination by Rome, that oppression by Rome of of the people of uh, of God. And so the fact that they are found together, scheming together on this occasion, it's a most unnatural and not to mention unholy alliance that uh, that has been made here. And they are brought together by their mutual, as I said, hatred of God and of his Messiah, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. The, Fa- the Pharisees saw Jesus uh, teaching uh, and his practices as a very serious threat to their interpretations of the Mosaic Law and of their spiritual leadership in Israel. And the Herodians saw Jesus as a threat to the continuing rule of Herod Antipas and the Herods. And so they had different reasons for hating him, but they both hated him. And hated God, of course. Uh, and their, inhen- their intense hatred for God and for his anointed is what enabled them to temporarily, at least, overcome their mutual antipathy for one another and conspire against Jesus together. Well, this uh, confrontation with Jesus started back in chapter 21, verse 23. Uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at that passage, and I won't bother to uh, reread it for you. But on that first occasion of on this day, when uh, representatives of the Sanhedrin, the Herodians are not mentioned there. They may have joined in a little bit later. Uh, but the representatives of the Sanhedrin, which included the Pharisees, uh, as well as the Sadducees, when they approached him that earlier time, earlier occasion in chapter 21, they were openly hostile to him. It was, who gives you this authority to say and do these things you're doing? It was very openly hostile. They were uh, challenging the legitimacy of Jesus' ministry, uh, both verbal and healing ministry. Um, They were challenging the legitimacy of that by questioning the authority Uh, by which he was doing and saying the things that he was doing and saying. And if you'll recall, on that occasion when we looked at that passage, uh, it totally backfired on him. Jesus, of course, outwitted them, uh, made them look like fools, and said, asked a a question to replace their question, and he said, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. Uh, They couldn't answer it because they knew either answer they gave would, would make them look bad, and so they... They said they didn't know, and Jesus said, well, I'm not going to answer your question. So Jesus uh, exposes um, their hypocrisy, um, refusing to dignify their question with an answer, as I just said, and then he prophesied, prophesied their future punishment in hell. He indicated you all are going to go to hell. Uh, And that was in the parable of the wicked tenant farmers, who were the religious leaders who didn't trust in Jesus as the Messiah and and as their deliverer and king. So that didn't work out very well for them on that first go-round. So 
they decide to change their tactics a little bit. Rather than being openly hostile with Jesus, they'll, some time has probably passed, and they'll approach him with a, a different um, attitude. Uh, so they decide to flatter him. That's what they decide to do. Um, perhaps flattery, fr- flattery will get them where they want to go and get him to do what they want him to do. And so that's what we read is going on in verse 16. Uh, I'll back up to verse 15 just to remind you. Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might entrap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples, uh, uh, those who were a part of the uh, uh, set, uh, Pharisees' following, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Can you hear how disgustingly insincere that is? I mean, you can almost hear it, even without my inflections, just reading it. You know what is going on in the hearts of these guys. I mean, they're just hypocrites uh, of the worst sort when they say stuff like this. Uh, and so they're trying to flatter Jesus, butter him up. Although everything they, I just read, everything they said there in verse 16 was absolutely true of Jesus, was it? wasn't it? They knew Jesus would speak the truth without regard to the consequences of doing so for himself or, uh, or others. They knew that he wouldn't allow uh, his stance on the topic that they brought up to be influenced by rank, wealth, power of those who opposed him. They, are, they knew that. And so they thought, well, well, we'll just state this as a way of kind of getting him to go, oh, yeah. Oh, well, thank you. The irony of this, the, um, the uh, rich irony of that, what they say there is God is speaking through them, in effect. Using these wicked men and their lips, their own lips, Jesus' arch enemies, to testify to Jesus' moral uprightness, his moral beauty. The enemies of God declaring his praises, in effect, even though they didn't mean it to be praise. Their question there in verse 17 um, sounded like a pious request for direction in deciding what to do in a difficult matter of ethics. So the question again, tell us therefore, verse 17, what do you think? Is it lawful to give the poll tax to Caesar or not? The truth of the matter is they didn't have one ounce of interest in bettering their understanding of the responsibilities that believers have to the state. They didn't care. One iota. Their only concern is entrapping Jesus and getting him out of their hair by doing away with him. And they hoped that by using flattery and trickery, they could get Jesus to drop his guard and say something that would alienate him from the people and or alarm the Roman authorities and cause them to come after him. Either way, either scenario would give them, the the religious leaders, the opportunity that they needed to do away with Jesus. So they asked this highly charged question with others watching, is it lawful to give the poll tax to Caesar or not? This tax was first imposed by the Romans uh, on the province of Judea, the Roman province of Judea, in uh, A.D. 6. So about uh, 23 years prior to this point in time. Um, That's when it was first imposed. And it was bitterly represented by the majority of Jews from the very beginning. And you can understand why very few people like taxes of any sort, uh, let alone by an oppressor of your nation. Right? And their attitude, the Jews' attitude towards the Romans' taxation of them was that uh, Jews were supposed to be God's covenant people uh, with God alone as their ruler, as their king. That's the way it was intended to be originally. And they knew that. 
even though it was no longer the case. And so their thought was, what business do, do God's people, God's covenant people, have paying taxes to this pagan Roman king? You can understand their logic. Makes a lot of sense, given their history. But not everybody felt quite exactly the same way about this tax. The zealots resolutely refused to pay uh, because they saw it as an acknowledgement of Caesar's domination over them, and they were right, actually, uh, in that sense. Um, and that was the worst thing that a patriotic Jew could do was acknowledge the legitimacy of Roman domination. The Herodians, as I mentioned already, um, along with the Sadducees, uh, they essentially supported the taxation of the Jewish people um, because they were supporters of the Herods. And the Pharisees resented the tax, but they were still able to rationalize its payment. Um, they did some, uh, you know, some uh, gymnastics, mental gymnastics, and were able to uh, sort of tolerate it, if you will. But the question is designed, again, as I say, it's designed to thrust Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. If he says yes to the question, the, the poll tax is lawful, is it lawful uh, to give the poll tax to Caesar? If he says yes to that question, he would utterly discredit himself in the eyes of most of the people who saw the hated tax as a token of Roman subjection subjugation rather, and if he said no, uh, you are not, it is not lawful to give the poll tax to Caesar, then he'd be inviting reprisals from the Roman authorities, right? And of course, his enemies knew this. So you say yes, you say no, and those are the only two options, right? No. As we see, Jesus once again outwits them. Um, but they thought they had him. They thought they had him, but they didn't realize with whom they were dealing. So that's the question uh, that they is designed to entrap and discredit Jesus. But then, uh, in the remainder of our time, we're going to look at the answer designed to expose the religious leaders' hypocrisy. And also, we learn some, some lessons about the relationship between the believer and the state in the process. First of all, let's talk about the denarius. So he says... Jesus does in verse 19, show me the coin, the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And there's a reason for that. <coughs> the denarius was a small silver coin that was uh, equal to a laborer's average week of pay. It wasn't an insignificant amount of money. It was a valuable coin. Um, and the denarius was coined by Emperor Tiberius, and it was portrayed, it had portrayed on it uh, the emperor himself, and he was portrayed on that coin as a semi-divine son of the god Augustus and his goddess wife Livia. Livia, rather. Livia, rather. Livia. And there was an inscription, along with the image on the coin, was an inscription, I don't know how big it was, actually, but there was an inscription on the coin that said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. That's what it said on the coin, on the denarius. So both the portrayal of Tiberius on the coin, the image, and the inscription itself were rooted in the cult of the emperor. And, were, and essentially constituted a claim by the emperor to divine honor and worship. The coin was a statement, in other words. And guess what? It was the only coin which was accepted for payment of taxes in Judea. It's the only coin they could use that the Romans would accept from them. They had to use that coin to pay the taxes that they owed uh, the Roman government and their proxies. Where do you suppose that coin that was handed to Jesus came from? It didn't come from Jesus. It came from his enemies. It was probably, almost certainly, in their pocket. One of them. 
in the in, in the uh, yeah in, in a pocket uh, on their robe, and they would have pulled that out and said, "Here." And Jesus undoubtedly knew if that's what happened, and almost certainly is what happened. Jesus knew it was going to happen, that they were going to pull that coin out and hand it to show it to him. Now, at this point, it's important to understand something about uh, ancient ways, the ways in ancient times. Um, according to the ancient way of thinking in Jesus' day, the money, and not just in Jesus, uh, that society, but and really in a, a widespread view, was that money coined by a ruler was not only guaranteed by the ruler its worth and that it could be used as legal tender, it was not only guaranteed by the ruler, but the coin, the money that was coined by a ruler, and it was all coin, actually belonged to the ruler. Okay? So in other words, it was Caesar's money that they had in their hand that they were using, that he was allowing them to use. And this was confirmed by the coin itself. It had Caesar's image on it, and it had the uh, statement that I just said, uh, the uh, uh, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So uh, uh, Tiberius uh, made himself out to be a, a, a demigod or semi god, demi god, whatever you want to call it, at least half god. Jesus, you see, by this illustration, by asking for the coin, having them produce the coin out of their pocket, almost certainly is what happened. I have no doubt of it, actually. Uh, but by that illustration, he makes it clear to his hearers that their acceptance of that money and usage of that money, of the emperor's money, was a statement that they were making. He says, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They tell him, it's Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, that belong to Caesar. By their accepting that money and using that money and paying their taxes with that money, that uh, denarius, Jesus was indicating to them in that statement that I just read to you, that you, you gentlemen, uh, you, your use of that money is a de facto recognition of Tiberius's authority over you, the Roman emperor's authority over you. That's what he was saying to them, and it didn't matter if they protested verbally. No, uh, we don't, we don't, we don't recognize you know uh, Caesar as our king. It didn't matter what they said. Because their actions spoke louder than their words. That, by the way, is a truth that we need to be pondering ourselves. We can, this is just an aside, but uh, it's one of the worst things that we Christians can do is go about saying things to people, especially the watching world, that we believe certain things are true, certain things are right, certain things are wrong, and then we don't do it ourselves. It's... It's hypocrisy, and it's um, it's evil. It's a terrible witness. It's the reason so many non Christians use for dismissing Christian the Christian message because of the hypocrisy of his people who claim one thing and do another on a regular basis. But he's saying Jesus is saying uh, you you are recognizing Caesar's authority. And so, they're, they're hypocrite. You know, they're, 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 they hated the tax. Uh, the uh, the uh, the Pharisees, at least, despised this poll tax. Um, and as did many of the people who were undoubtedly gathered around listening. And so, it's the height of hypocrisy for them to rail against the Roman government uh, with their lips, while at the same time, by their actions, lending support to it and its legitimacy. And so, by accepting and using the emperor's money, they had, the, all those people that were standing before him, his opponents and others like them, they had um, established, their use of it had established a, an implied contract, 
actually, between themselves and Caesar, obliging them to submit to whatever conditions Caesar, who owned the money, placed on the use of his money, including the payment of taxes. You see that? It's my money, Caesar. It's my money. I'm telling you, this is how you're going to use it. I'll allow you to pay your poll tax with it. In fact, I'll demand that you pay your poll tax with it. And the fact that they were using that money uh, was an implied contract between themselves and and, uh, Tiberius and the Roman government. In this example that we have here, it points only to their use of the emperor's money uh, as establishing that implied contract. But the same, the same principle uh, would apply to their enjoyment of other benefits that were provided by the Roman government to them, including the use of Roman-built roads, bridges, aqueducts, their reliance upon Roman law, uh, and uh, the peace that it provided, the uh, Pax Roma, around uh, the world and uh, stability, uh, their enjoyment of, uh, uh, or, uh, of other, other things that came with, uh, with Roman um, uh, overlordship, protection provided by the emperor's armies from uh, you know, barbarians, say. The point is, the fact that they were accepting Roman domination by their by the decisions that they were making and that they had, in effect, entered into a contract with Rome, whether they realized it or not, um, that is, was true. And it obliged them. That contract obliged them to pay for those things that they were using that belonged to Rome, that Rome had provided them with, be it the roads, be it the coinage, uh, uh, be it the peace, they were obliged. There's some important lessons that we can learn from this. Um, for one thing, what we learn from what Jesus says uh, here, and especially in verse 21, um, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, it teaches us that there is more than one divinely established authority, uh, a sphere of authority operating in the world like I mentioned earlier to the children. Uh, Most certainly the family is one sphere of authority, the church is another, and the state is yet another. And those are divinely established institutions and authorities, authorities, if you will. They're all established by God before or shortly after the fall, and each is under God and his authority of the authority of his word. Whether they realize it or not, they're obliged to obey it. This includes the state, by the way. The state is obliged to uh, keep the moral law and uphold the moral law that's set forth in their conscience and that's explicitly laid down in the Ten Commandments. They're obliged. Now, do most of our the leaders of most nations, including our own, care too much about what the Bible says, about what kind of laws they should make and enforce and not enforce and not make? Probably not so many. Doesn't mean they aren't obliged. They are. And they will be held accountable for how they, laws they passed, decisions they rendered. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is being held accountable right now. They're under that authority, and they're under that those uh, the moral law of God, uh, which is written on their conscience, even though it may be utterly seared uh, when they are in uh, charge of uh, some governing, uh, some aspect of government. But each of these spheres of authority has its own uh, place, if you will, in the world and in our society. And that authority of those various spheres is authority that we as Christians are obliged to recognize and to respect. And under most circumstances, in most places, to obey. 
I'll say more about that in a minute. So that's one thing. We God has established authorities, and we are obliged to recognize those authorities uh, and uh, and submit to them if we are placed under them. Also, we learn from this passage that while the church was once a state, it was a state under the Israelitish theocracy uh, that came into being um, at Mount Sinai. It was once a state. The church was once a state. It was both. It was a church state. That state of affairs has come to an end. It does not exist anymore. Israel was unique in the history of the world. It didn't, nothing like it existed before it came into existence and nothing like it came, uh, has existed since its demise, uh, uh, formal demise in 70 AD. From now on, the church and the state are to have their own separate, distinct spheres of authority with no overlap. I reserve the right to retract that last little comment there. Anyway, I want to say with no overlap. From now on, the church is not to be over the state, nor is the state to be over the church. Both are illegitimate arrangements, utterly illegitimate, and must be opposed by us. The covenanters may took a very strong and a godly stand against the uh, attempts by the king to impose his kingship on the church. And many of them shed their blood. Uh, Let's say uh, over 15,000, 18,000. There, there were tens of thousands of uh, covenanters who uh, said, I will not uh, say God saved the king because of what it implied. Not that they didn't want the king to come to Christ. He was an unbeliever. Uh, they would have liked him to come to Christ, but they couldn't make that statement because of what it implied, that the king was head of the church rather than Jesus. We can never tolerate that, ever, in our churches in our, in our uh, situation. Um, so there is a biblical separation of church and state, in other words. Not because the Constitution says so. Actually, the Constitution doesn't say so. It doesn't use that wording. That was a letter written by Jefferson, I want to say, uh, after the uh, pending of the Constitution, uh, where he was corresponding, uh, as, as interpreting uh, the Constitution, his interpretation. It also, this passage reminds us that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we are also citizens of an earthly kingdom and have, um, or kingdoms, I maybe should say spheres, kingdoms, um, and we have certain God-given obligations to uh, those spheres, as I mentioned earlier, including the state, including, obviously, the family. Uh, But the point here is with respect to the state. And we are required by Jesus' words there in verse 21 to render unto Caesar that which belongs and only that which belongs to Caesar. Jesus is stressing here that whatever... um, uh, Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, no... uh, Look at, let me read the second part of verse 21. So, then they said to him, Caesar's, after he asked the question, whose likeness and inscription is this? Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and then he adds this phrase, and to God, the things that are God's. You can render to things to Caesar the things that are Caesar. That's, that's fine, and, and you need to. And we can have discussions about what that means and what things belong to Caesar and what doesn't. But we have to render to God the things that are God's. We must. We as believers, indeed all mankind must, but we are the only ones who understand that that is an obligation that we have. And Jesus is stressing by saying that, render unto God the things that are God's. He's stressing that whatever trust, whatever obedience, whatever gratitude, whatever honor, uh, God requires of you, as set forth in his word, 
whatever things that you owe to God, including, by the way, your obligation to submit to the Roman, uh, not the Roman authorities, to the governing authorities per Romans 13.1 and uh, uh, 1 Peter. But whatever you are obliged to give to God, Jesus is in effect implying here, saying you should give it continually, as often as it's called for, and happily, because it's God's will for you. You are to render unto God, read joyfully, and whenever it's necessary, the things that belong to him. If you're here today, and you are uh, not a believer in Jesus, or you're not a believer in the true Jesus, you're trusting perhaps in a Jesus that you've created, who's a nice guy, and he's your pal, your buddy, You talk to him once in a while, say, hey, what's up? You're not talking to God. You're not talking to Jesus. You're talking to a figment of your imagination who the devil, uh, one of his, one of his angels gave you that idea. Or actually, may have been just your old man inside of you gave you that idea. Your heart did. That Jesus was like that. He is the only Jesus that will save you from the hell that we all deserve including yours truly, is the Jesus of the Bible, who is 100% God and 100% man and is the only way to God. There is no other. And if you think there is, you don't believe in Jesus. It's as simple as that. Because you've got the wrong Jesus that you're trusting in to to get you to heaven. You, whether you are a Christian, or even if you're not a Christian, belong to God. You say, what, what, do you, what, do you mean, what do you mean by that? I'm saying that because he made you. Now, you might deny that. No, I'm a product of, you know, whatever. No, you're not. God made you, and you know deep down inside that's true. And so you belong to God. Now, you are not acknowledging that right now because you hate him. Because you don't aren't trusting in his son, having submitted uh, to Jesus as the king as well as the savior of your life. But he, you belong to him. And you are obliged. You don't have a choice in this matter, a legitimate choice, to say, I'll think about having Jesus someday. Maybe I'll let him be my God someday or my savior someday. You don't have a choice. Your only legitimate choice is to trust, to flee to Jesus so that you well, because he deserves it. That's why. I was going to say because it's the only way you'll escape hell's flames, which is true. But the reason you should flee to him is because he's worthy of your service and your love and your trust and your obedience and your reverence all the days of your life. And he demands that in his word of all mankind. And so you are obliged to render that to him. And you'll only do that if God gives you the grace to do that. But you need to do that in order to be saved and in order to be forgiven by God and reconciled to him. Um, And you need to honor him and live a life for him, not for yourself as you're doing at present if you're an unbeliever. By making a distinction between Caesar and God, here in verse 21, Jesus was rejecting, implicitly, he was rejecting Caesar's claim that his was not only a material kingdom, Caesar's kingdom was not only a material or earthly kingdom, but that it was a spiritual one as well. Because again, he claimed to be godlike or demigod, semi-god, whatever, half-god. His dad was God, so he claimed. Jesus is rejecting that by his differentiation between Caesar's sphere and God's sphere here. That's another thing we can learn from this. Also, God is sovereign over all things, including the emperor. You know that well-known verse in the end of Psalm uh, 103, uh, where he says, uh, and if I don't have it, I'll, I'll mess up the, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all, including Caesar. Including 
Vladimir Putin, including Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump and Queen Elizabeth, etc., etc., etc. He is sovereign over all the world. There is not an inch of it that he uh, isn't in control of, that, uh, doesn't re- that he doesn't require its submission. And this and other passages that I could uh, summon make the point. And then the emperor, to be sure, was to be obeyed whenever the emperor's will did not clash with God's will. And Jesus, that's also an effect in here. Render, not if you wish to render, but render, it's a command. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That applied in Jesus' day to the emperor. It applies in our day uh, to the uh, governing authorities over us. However, whenever God's will, as set forth in his word, either explicitly or implicitly, whenever God's will with respect to our governing, uh, whenever God's will is at odds with the will of the governing authorities, God requires, absolutely commands and demands that you obey him rather than the governing authorities. Just as Peter and John did when uh, when they were commanded by their uh, the Sanhedrin not to preach uh, any more about Jesus. In Acts 4, 19, uh, Peter and John answered and said, right after they told him, we command you not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered and said to them, whatever is right in the sight of God to give, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. In other words, you know the answer to that question. And then they said, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. In other words, they said, we're not going to obey you. We are not going to obey you. And you know exactly why that is. Because God has told us to do this. California Governor Gavin Newsom banned indoor worship services. He didn't have the right to do that. He's an evil man, a godless man, quite evident from positions he's taken and behaviors that he's exhibited. And his dictum is in direct opposition to that well-known passage in Hebrews chapter uh, 10, verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And there are multiple places in the Psalms that make the same point. Corporate worship is commanded. God's people are required to worship him together on his day. They're required to do that, to not forsake the assembling together. And Gavin Newsom has no authority to say what he said. And John MacArthur has, and his church have every right to do what they're doing. Amen. If the government were to demand that you somehow pass a law that said you as a Christian employer are required to hire a certain number, of, a percentage of, um, uh, what's the word, cisgender folks, You can take it, well, you can't tell them to take a long walk on a short pier, but you can, by your actions, say that to them, and should. You just simply disobey, because God would not have you uh, do such a thing. If you're ever told that you have to use uh, whatever pronoun, and you'll be fined if you don't, whatever pronoun another person wants you to use with respect to them, regardless of what their actual gender is, uh, as defined by their genes, you can ignore that. You don't have to refer to somebody as they. Caesar only has so much authority. And we are not allowed to obey him when God says, don't do that. 
There's no contest there. There's no question there. We live in difficult times, and they're getting more difficult. Who knows what's going to be the law 10, 15 years from now, five years from now. We have to know what the government has legitimate, can legitimately expect from us in terms of responsibilities with respect to them and what they do not have any authority over us with respect to. It's Some of the questions are a little sometimes difficult to to decipher. Uh, Some areas are easier than others. But the point is, we need to make sure. And God, as part of rendering to God what is God's, is is obedience, legitimate obedience to legitimate authorities. But we must always put God first and his law, his will, which is for to be a blessing and is designed to bless us as well as honor him that must come first. May God give us the wisdom to do that rightly in a way that honors him and is a good witness to the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. Thank you for what it teaches us. Lord, we need wisdom. We live in uh, difficult days uh, when there is uh, the uh, things that were culturally acceptable, accepted and understood and uh, largely believed by all are just dropping by the wayside. Uh, it's, um, it's scary. Uh, if we're not careful, we can fear uh, the world and the future. But Lord, you have called us not to be afraid, but to trust in you. Would you please help us all to rest in your sovereign rule over the cosmos and your particular and loving rule over us as we walk through this world as strangers in a foreign land on our way to heaven. Give us wisdom, give us discernment, give us, uh, help us to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves as we make this trek home. And would you please help us to know and understand your word and how it applies in our various situations that we encounter along the way. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.